Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Clark. I'm Nick Curtis. And I'm Nancy Durrant. Coming up on the show this week, Kenneth Branagh gives us his leer. Yes, we'll be reviewing the new West End production of Shakespeare's epic tragedy, starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh. That's on now at the Wyndham's Theatre. We'll also review the new musical of The Time Traveller's Wife. Okay, let's deal with the weird stuff. You, time travel. You are not supposed to know that. That's on now at the Apollo. And our guest this week is actor Robert Bathurst, who is currently performing in Keith Waterhouse's Geoffrey Barnard is Unwell at the Coach and Horses pub in Soho. It's very tight. I work from behind the bar, but also there are three flaps in the bar which I use, and I go out and I have a high table in the middle. And they're very narrow channels through people, stepping over dogs, and at one point there was a cat walking across the, across the bar. You know, there's all sorts of proper distraction going on. I really love doing it. You may know Robert for his appearances in Toast of London and Cold Feet. Hello, welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Before we start, make sure you're following this podcast. We release on every major podcast platform on Sunday mornings. If you're following us on platforms like Spotify, we'll pop up on your homepage the day an episode lands. And get in touch. We have an email address, theatrepod at standard.co.uk. And speaking of which, thank you to Andrew Storm for getting in touch. Andrew asked us two questions, the first of which was, is there a production you recommend in London in the run-up to Christmas? But I think we're going to address that more fully in a couple of weeks' time. Other than uh, Operation Mince Meat, which we all love and can't shut up about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just book Operation Men's Me. Get him another extension, that's what <laughs> Yeah, but Andrew's other question is a really interesting one. He asked, who is the next Andrew Lloyd Webber in terms of musical productions? Oh. A tricky one. I know, I thought well, this was a really interesting yeah. question, because I don't know, I mean, Nick Curtis, you'll be loads better at this than me, but I, I sort of thought, you know, he's a composer, isn't he, and and an impresario. Is that... He's a like, triple threat, because yeah. he's a composer, producer, and theatre owner, so yeah. there is really nobody out there like him, you know, I mean, he's nearest rival and I think the slightly richer man is Cameron McIntosh although I'm not exactly sure where they feature on the rich list at the moment but there's really nobody else who does all those three things and weirdly I think actually Lloyd Webber's the most valuable part of Lloyd Webber's portfolio is the song rights is the Mm. rights to things like memory uh, you know or the score of Joseph you know those are Mm. incredible I remember interviewing once and he was saying you know those are the things that he really has to think about who he's going to bequeath those to on the producing side there are some younger producers coming through Mm. I mean 
I'm thinking of Paul Taylor Mills at the mm-hmm. other Palace Theatre, mm-hmm. who was backed by the later much missed Bill Kenwright um, in that endeavour. Um, he was also backed by Lloyd Webber quite early on when Lloyd Webber initially bought the uh, the other Palace. There's Katie Lipson, who produced uh, Flowers for Mrs. Harris, that mm-hmm. we had Jenna Russell on talking about last week on the podcast. There's Adam Lenson, who is a, a, a creator and producer of musicals as well. But, you know, there, there's nobody mm-hmm. out there of the sort of stature or mm-hmm. likely future well, stature this is of it. I mean, Lloyd Webber, to be honest. I, um, I asked my friend David Benedict, who is the font of all knowledge on musical theatre, yeah. what he thought about this. I mean, he's a uh, writes for the stage and, and variety. He said there's a case for saying Stars and Drew. Um, their Mary Poppins was massive and there's numerous um, other ones. So he says varying quality, but uh, Honk apparently was very, very good. Honk was Not charming. Honk. That was Giles Herrera, another podcast alumnus. Uh, yeah. Indeed. Uh, um, was in that. And he said there's really no one with um, Lloyd Webber's longevity. I mean, you know, there are great people coming up. You'd think of the creators of Six, but they've had one big hit, so they yeah. need another one. And yeah. you know, we could talk about Spit Lip, who did Operation Mincemeat. But again, they've got one big one hit. hit. Yeah. No one really at the moment can measure up to Lloyd Webber. No. It's true, yes. I mean, even his less successful shows are incredibly successful. And he also, I mean, he had an amazing, um, you know, he's had input beyond the world of his own musicals. You know, he put a lot of money into uh, La Bette when that was done, a sort of Mm. really weird drama Mm. with Mark Rylance and later with uh, David Hyde Pierce in it about sort of sending up sort of 17th century mannerisms, uh, (laughs) French mannerisms. And um, the simple answer, I'm afraid, is, um, Andrew, is that there isn't next Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) There will not be another, I fear. Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. What else has uh, happened this week? Well, the most exciting news for me was that Isabelle Huppert is coming back to London. Mm. Uh, she always uh, comes to the Barbican, doesn't she? It's like her favourite place. Well, the last time, funny enough, she came was at the South Bank, but that was for one night only. Uh, but and uh, I actually had the privilege of interviewing her for that show. Um, wow. I was absolutely terrified because she is famous for her froideur and her hauteur, <laughs> so very French. And she had just done an interview with uh, another publication in which she had um, responded to one question saying, you dare ask that of someone you've never met before. <laughs> I thought, okay, here we go, here we oh, go. Right. But actually, she was um, joy personified and um, was absolutely fascinating. This is pre-pandemic, but did talk about she was going to work with Ivo Van Hover, I think, on the Glass Menagerie, and oh, yeah. had talked yes. about. Um, sure about that. She had talked about working with uh, Simon McBurney, the obviously the, mm. the, the brains behind uh, Complicity. I mean, again, we'd be absolutely fascinating for that. Mm. But uh, I assume that that COVID has, has put that. What's she actually coming in to do? It's a version of Mary Queen of Scots, isn't it? That's She's right. Doing, uh, yes. It's it's called Mary Said What She Said, which is at the Barbican for three days in May next year. Mm. The publicity image features her with a green face screaming. So lots of people are going, I I knew El Faber in Wicked just yeah. dropped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would go and see Isabel Huppert oh. in Wicked. I would. I would, <laughs> watch <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. I think that French. would open up a whole new... Uh, <laughs> the last time she was in London before this sort of one-night show for a, for a proper um, theatre show was in the Barbican in 2016 yeah. for a show called Fedra, which had a... In Fedras, there was an um, mm. S in brackets at the end of it. But I love this. One critic described it as the most sexually unhinged piece of French drama to hit London in years. Which I thought was really <laughs> in a crowded <laughs> field. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite niche, but I mean, maybe, quite niche. Maybe as well, Pair is, is the sort of opposite of everyone else. She only knows how to get to the Barbican, yeah. rather than not being able to get to the Barbican like, like everybody else. But uh, but no, well, that's that's very exciting. I think. Yeah, that's thrilling. We have a packed out show today, so shall we kick off with our first review? It's King Lear at Wyndham's Theatre. Guys, you both saw this. Um, I've read a lot of varying opinions on this. Not many raves, but certainly the opposite. Uh, 
what do you both think? Well, it's um, to, for background, this is Kenneth Branagh directing himself as a, as a relatively unusually youthful Lear. There have been younger Lears in the past, but he's 63 years old. The truism about Lear is that by the time you're old enough to play it, you're too old to play it. You know, it makes a kind of sense. Credibly, at 63, he could be the father of three mature daughters. Mm. You know, he could be thinking about dividing up his kingdom, which here is a Neolithic age Britain. He's a sort of uh, hirsute, lavishly bearded chieftain here whose followers clatter staves behind him in a, in a vaguely threatening manner. Almost everybody else in it, I think everybody else in it is a graduate of Branagh's old drama school, Rada. One of them uh, playing Gloucester is a relatively grown-up actor, the others are all recent graduates. Corey Milkreist, who plays Edmund, is uh, is is sort of out there in the world already. As you yeah. know, he, he played um, the young George III in Queen Charlotte, uh, right. the Bridgerton spin-off on yeah. Netflix, yeah. so he's got a sort of extra cachet. He's got a bit of track record, yes, yeah, but it definitely. is a young it is a very, young Lear, very young. isn't it? A very young Lear. And it's a bit sort of meh. It's quite <laughs> mediocre, isn't it? It is quite, yeah. yeah. It's funny. Yeah, what it's do just you think? Well, <laughs> I think <laughs> it is almost always a mistake to star in and direct the same production. If we had time, I would tell you about, and maybe one day I will over a drink, like the production of Macbeth that still can, you know, 20 years down the line, dissolve the Durrant family into giggles at the mention of that baby. Um, but I think it suffice to say the funniest scene in a spectacularly bad star-directed version of a famous tragedy was the one where they killed Macduff's children. Like, it was... Right. The, the audience collapsed with laughter. I mean, it's right. really bad. Anyway, the problem with Branner, I think, as a director, is that he's incapable of editing. Mm. Like, he, he has loads well, of ideas. But he has loads of ideas and he just does all of them. The backdrop is these kind of standing stones, you yes. know, sort of, uh, shorthand Neolithic. And at one point, or a couple of points, there are projections of the faces of the actors kind of going like, you know, and it's just, A, it's a bad idea and it looks spectacularly naff, and B, it's not consistent and it doesn't make, it doesn't add anything and there's a big disc a big eye hovering over these stones which sometimes yeah, has a sort, sort of, of like a cloudscape on it or, yeah. or you know starlight um, sort of sometimes, sometimes has a bit a like a James Turrell um, kind of earthwork so yeah. you know you're looking through this aperture sometimes it's an eye yeah. and sometimes it looks like some kind of sort of prehistoric thing where the sun is supposed to come across I mean when I get it's the an idea. eye it's a bit of a heavy handed metaphor isn't it given bit. that later on Gloucester is blinded so. are yeah. the stones a bit spinal tap the stones <laughs> are a little bit spinal tap they move around more than the spinal tap ones right. so it's a little like watching very, very old school Daleks. Right. You know? <laughs> they're, also, they do, they're also a little bit plasticky. Yeah. yeah. I sort of like, I kind of like the idea of the Neolithic setting, but I do seem to remember it being done rather better in Gregory Doran's 2016 production with Anthony Cher for the right. RSC. I remember. That I just one, thought yes. it felt a bit sort of this. This just I don't know. It's sort of there's been a lot of money spent on something that looks quite basic. Yeah. The verse speaking in it. What did you think of that? I thought Branagh was was very clear, but it's because it's two hours long. It's all quite rushed in the early parts. Mm. There's not a lot of grandeur in the first half of it. Really, it's only no. once he starts to go mad and he goes mad with a sort of thunderbolt. Suddenly I mean, that clutches is the best his head. Bit. Yeah. It's it's like he's had a sort of cerebral hemorrhage or something or a stroke. Uh, it's something that has fundamentally altered his personality that before that he is this relatively he's this vigorous strapping you know warlike figure I suppose and is Although, that a major problem in the fact that he doesn't look like someone at the end of his life who needs to divide his kingdom it, it is a bit of a problem there, there's some things that you think is not very is not very sort of thought through that everybody's a bit grimy in this it's like it's that old um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail thing that he must be a king because he hasn't got shit all over him like everyone else <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody else is sort of is it's a, filthy but they've it's got a bit really extravagant hair 
cut hairdos and, and elaborate braids and things like that. And he looks, you know, like he's possibly going to serve you a skinny oat milk latte in <laughs> Shoreditch know, somewhere. It's like he's just had or his hair you done. A hipster spoon, Lovely old you know. blow dry. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. very funny. But you know, I thought the young cast was actually pretty decent considering their age. I thought Corey Milkreese was great as Edmund. I'd forgotten what a fun role it is. It's oh, it's actually a great the part. scene stealer of the show. It totally is. Yes. And I thought that Doug Colling as Edgar did come into his own later once he'd become poor Tom, which is actually the only good bit of that role anyway. Absolutely, like quite a lot that, of poor Tom is like, cut, oh, no. which is quite a relief for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true, actually. And it, it, but before that, he's just going, why does my father hate me? Like, you know, for just yes. I mean, for ages, he's got nothing else to do. Yes. Um, I also really enjoyed Goneril and Regan. I, I enjoyed Goneril and Regan. Deborah Ali and yeah. Melanie Joyce Bermudez. And I thought that Huey O'Donnell as Cornwall was brilliant. He was so unpleasant. <laughs> so yes. deeply, deeply horrible. But I... I felt like Branagh was a bit camp. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's just a sort of foolish, arrogant old man, which is fine. But you don't get the kind of danger beneath the surface of someone no. who has got that kind of power in that kind of society. Yes. I don't know. He's in he's in slightly good too, slightly too good shape. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it did, you know, it did work towards the end. I think, you know, the final scenes are genuinely, you know, they, they really did strike at my emotions quite yeah. effectively. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I never thought I would say this and I did appreciate getting home at 10 o'clock on press night, I have to say, but yeah. I'm not sure the play benefits that much from the abridging. No. It does slightly lose its coherence. Mm. But, you lose certain lines that I mean I'm not going to pretend to be so familiar with the text of Lear that I noticed all the cuts okay but when Cordelia dies Lear usually says this beautiful line which is her voice was ever soft I think or sweet gentle and low an excellent thing in a woman yeah. which is a beautiful line and it just became her voice was ever sweet hmm. and, it, and then it, and it was kind of A pointless and B lost its sort of beauty and I just sort of thought can that really have been taken out for brevity it was completely so, so it's not just whole scenes it's literally abridged yeah, like, and if that, if that, I, I mean, of please know let every me line in Lear. Where is yeah. Mistress? I mistook you for a joint stool. Where has that line gone? <laughs> we can't all just start quoting Lear for the next half yeah, an hour please. of the podcast. Catch up with us four hours later <laughs> yeah, on the podcast. <laughs> but if that's an example of how it was done, it seems strikingly unsympathetic to the language, and the yes. language is the thing. Yes, you know I mean? yes, it really it's is. true. Also, um, also, just let me say, the music. The music, come on, those mm. bloody drums. It's like an episode of Time Team. Yes. I thought Terry Jones or even Neil Oliver was going to come on any minute and explain where they'd found all yes. the sticks. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, Branagh is, is, is a man who's living his best life, isn't he? He's got this incredible <laughs> Hollywood career. You know, he takes a break from directing Thor films and appearing and directing in Poirot films to do lovely little films like Belfast, you know, yeah. about his childhood, which was absolutely wonderful. Gorgeous. And then comes back to the West End, kudos on him to coming back to the West End. Kudos to him for yep. employing young graduates. I think it's a little bit old school tie that he's only done Rada graduates. You think, you know, Rada is a bit like Eaton. It's not the one that needs the help and exposure yeah, yeah, most, yeah, is yeah, it true. really? But so I think on this occasion, it's it's not, you know, it's not a three trumpet fanfare for him. It's probably a sort of, you know, muted cornet. One. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cuts yeah. everywhere, you know, cuts the text, cuts the brass section. Yeah, it's just not a Leah for the ages, is it? Ultimately, you know, people keep saying to me, oh, should I? Try, and I'm just like you know you don't it's need, also, you don't need to see no it. it's 50 performances only and they they've lost quite a few through illness yes. as well and it's it's going to go to New York in uh, 2025 I think so not right. next year but um, anyway maybe we'll see what the uh, New Yorkers make of it then absolutely. 
Let's go to the ads. In part two, we'll be with Robert Barthes for Geoffrey Barnard is unwell at the Coach and Horses. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, this is Bernadette Peters, and you're listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Robert Berthurst, currently appearing in Geoffrey Bernard is Unwell in a site-specific performance at the Coach and Horses pub where the where the play is set. Um, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Nick. I saw this the first time you did it as I think it was just a one-off it was initially done, wasn't it? Yeah, we did it uh, a few times, actually, uh, at, at the pub. And then uh, this is a production which has been sort of more widely publicised. I was offered it and uh, it just seemed like a really good idea. I mean, the play itself is set in The Coach and Horses. That's where where, where people who remember seeing the play will um, will remember that. And it also had five people in it. It had the, the person playing Geoffrey Bernard, famously originally by Peter O'Toole and others. And Ned Sherin and Keith Waterhouse put in four other actors to act out the scenes from his life. Uh, and I always felt that uh, when I saw it, I saw it back in 89, and I always felt that the the other four actors were only in it to stop Peter O'Toole going mad from being on his own for six months. <laughs> but uh, they so what uh, James Hillier has done is uh, the director and adapter. He's he's adapted it for a, a one hour production, of, um, performance on my own, and uh, I we do it in the in the in the bar of the Coach and Horses. So I I, I wander around, we cram seventy into the pub. And off I go. We should uh, explain to to listeners who possibly don't know that Geoffrey Bernard was um, a spectator journalist and a notorious drinker. I think it would be that that would be a sort of delicate way of putting it, wouldn't it? He was a drinker. He was a gambler. He was a diabetic who never took his insulin. Uh, he was many times married. And uh, Alexander Chancellor, the editor of The Spectator, recognised him as somebody who was the genuine article, not just a weekend bohemian and who was a denizen of, of all the drinking clubs in, in Soho, and he invited him to write a column called Low Life, which he ran for 15 years, and uh, it was in, in tandem with, a, with another column called High Life. And uh, so Geoffrey Bernard wrote this column every week, uh, which was, must have been a challenge for somebody in his condition. But what the play is, in effect, and, and what Keith Waterhouse did was he collated the pieces from uh, The Spectator and turned them into a, a, a theatre play, play piece. So the writing is all Geoffrey Bernard's, and uh, it's been assembled, really, by, by Keith Waterhouse with, with other embellishments. There are some um, wonderful moments in it. I, I particularly remember the, the cat racing interlude. I believe the cat racing was... Um, when some horse racing was rained off, this was a way for sort of compulsive gamblers to get their kicks, is that right? Yes, I mean, it was frozen off. The winter, for three weeks, he sat in the pub fidgeting, he said, with his mates. 
Um, and what's great is when, when as, as Jeffrey and I say that, we're actually in the pub where, where, where he, was, he, was, he was stuck during this terrible winter when there was no racing and where he got arrested and all those other things like that. We're actually doing it in the pub. So, yes, the cat racing was uh, somebody, um, <laughs> I don't know how true it was, but uh, somebody, some other mad gambler um, set up a race course in his flat in Battersea. <laughs> and so we do, I do that um, with stuffed cats uh, on lines and get the audience to to take part in that and they they haul in the cats and everybody cheers and everybody's backed one of the horse one of the cats it's a, it's an enjoyable sequence absolutely and you have to perform the egg trick every day don't you tell us about the egg trick well the egg the egg trick was um a, a stunt that keith waterhouse used to do on the floor of the old establishment club in soho which bernard does in the play and it involves a biscuit tin lid and it involves a pint glass of water and it involves a matchbox sleeve and a raw egg and and what he does is he puts the and you should try this at home. You you put, you put the uh, tin over the pint glass and then you put the funnel of the matchbox on the tin and then you perch the egg on the matchbox and then with the heel of your shoe you whack it whack the tin so hard the tin flies across the room and the egg plops into the water. I should say to all our listeners we won't be liable for any uh, dry cleaning bills should this go wrong. Has it gone wrong at all for you or does it work every night? Do you know something? It, it's worked every time apart from one the other day when I did it and. Uh, and luckily, the egg didn't splatter everywhere, which is um, was quite likely. And it and it missed the it missed the uh, the, the the glass. And I hadn't sort of prepared what to do in case it failed. But I just said, "Shall I do it again?" And of course, the audience went up, and I went off and got a fresh egg, and uh, it worked that time. So it sort of built something rather good. Fantastic. How is it performing it with basically a, amid a pub crowd? I love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, I'm, it is it's very tight, and and I. I work from behind the bar, but also there are three flaps in the bar which I use, and I go out and I have a high table in the middle, and uh, and there are very narrow channels through people stepping over dogs and you know just uh, at one point there was a cat walking across the across the bar, uh, all sorts of Soho, the orchestra of Soho, the symphony of Soho behind outside with the with the fireworks recently and the um, ambulance lights strobing in and people looking in through the window and you know there's all sorts of of uh, proper distraction going on and not least the fact that you know there's all these people sort of crammed in you're you're, you're with them it's 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 a it's a I, I really love doing it and it's very very proximate and and you're literally brushing shoulders with people and <laughs> stepping over their legs has anyone uh, sort of wandered into the pub just hoping to get a drink and uh, found themselves mid-performance no they have uh, they have door policy <laughs> they have people on the door uh, but somebody did uh, collapse I had to uh, I had to stop the show a couple of times when people um, it got very hot and um, somebody went down. I thought actually it was much more serious than it turned out to be. But anyway, I stopped the show and, and he was uh, taken out onto the pavement. The ambulance was called. And it start, I, had to re- I restarted the show. It happened to be just at the point when Bernard is talking about the Grim Reaper and all the friends he'd lost over the years. And, uh, and this ambulance light was, as a, was flashing in through the... Uh, through the pub, it was a sort of perfect moment in that sense. It perfect also for the fact that he was okay. Jolly good. I'm glad, very glad to hear that. I guess every generation has their of, of Londoner probably has their own theory about Soho or, or when was it what, what its golden age was. This does refer to a lot. Most of the people from this era have now gone, haven't they? You know, it's it's the sort of tail end of the of the sort of Francis Bacon era of of, of um, loose artists around. Did you ever experience the the sort of Soho of of, um, of Bernard's generation? I can just about remember seeing him in the coach and horses and um, certainly I interviewed Norman Ball on the landlord when he retired. Well I had the pleasure of meeting Christopher Howes the other day who um, 
uh, was one of the gang and uh, must have been much younger than them. And he uh, he took the pledge and uh, and survives. And the, he wrote a book called uh, Soho in the 80s. And uh, what's what's extraordinary about it is that he can remember it. Soho isn't what it was. It has been a cry for a long time. There was a, there was a good interview. There was a, there was a very good um, arena program on Bernardo, which came out at the time in 89 when, when the play was out, in which Ian Board, who was the then proprietor of the Colony Room Club in Dean Street, was a drinking den, he was being interviewed and he said, people say that Soho isn't what it was. But he, and then he said, but it never was what it was anyway. There's always, there's always, there's always been a sort of construction of, 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 what, how the, of the demi-monde that Soho is and people say it's not what it was i'm sure it wasn't but um i i mean i have no view on on whether uh, all the rent hikes and destruction of the raymond review bar and all the rest of it has has uh, has affected soho to the extent that it, it doesn't exist anymore in that sense but um yes i mean there is a a, a very sort of rosy tinted view of of what it was like i mean it was pretty bleak in many ways but what is glorious about I think the play Geoffrey Bernard is unwell is it's a celebration of Geoffrey Bernard's writing before 11 a.m. And he was so was so witty and so illuminating and, 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 and uh, characterful in, in the way he portrays himself and the people around him. And of course, it's a construction. It's a, like any stand-up comedian or entertainer, when they're writing about themselves, it's, it, is a, it is a construction of themselves. Um, and he had to knock out this piece in whatever state he was in um, for 15 years. And so... Yes, maybe there's a, a lot of license taken in as to as to what it was like, but there is sort of an underlying truth about it which people do recognise. Yes, you've obviously had a you know really um, varied career over the years. A lot of people know you from Cold Feet, but you know there's been stage work, lots of other TV work. I particularly enjoyed Toast of London. Will there be more of that coming along, and was that fun to do? I don't think there'll be any more. At Ma- Matt's got his eyes firmly set on the west coast of. Uh, of the states, and uh, he did do Toast of Tinseltown, which was to, uh, we took the story out of London. But the first two series, yeah, I mean, it was for those who don't know, it was um, it was a, a take on on the acting profession. I thought at the time when I, when we first did it, I thought this may be just a niche show of, of people to uh, only get what uh, who were only interested in in the world of you know, acting and so forth. But it seems to have gone much wider than that, and uh, people are love love it. It's uh, though I don't think there's going to be any more probably, but I mean, they may think they've done all done all those jokes. But uh, it had a voice. It had a very it had its own convention and its own strange <laughs> strange way of of uh, of looking at life, which uh, is impossible to describe. And those who don't know Toast, the only thing to say is that in the first episode, I had to sleep with a Bruce Forsyth lookalike. It, it's got an oddness to it, which. I wasn't sure it would take off, but it certainly has. <laughs> that, that particular scene has stuck very firmly in my mind, I have to say. Um, <laughs> to take it back to Geoffrey Bernard, when you finish up of an evening, do you, uh, do you sink a vodka and tonic, or uh, is that, would that be two methods? Well, no, I, I, I drink, but I, I'm not a drinker. I'm not a drinker with a capital D. The landlady, Ali, as I'm sort of sitting there, she gives me a glass of port. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I come down from it. We do two shows, so we're doing two, one at eight and one at ten. And uh, it's and so it's uh, it's a fairly full evening and well it's a very full evening and so uh, no so no I'm not uh, I'm not um, stalking <laughs> stalking the streets of Soho for looking for late night entertainment no terrific Robert Barthes thank you so much for coming on the Standard Theatre podcast lovely to talk to you thanks Nick. Jeffrey Barnard is unwell, is on at the Coach and Horses pub in Soho until November 30th. Let's go to a quick ad break, stay right there and make sure you hit follow.
the rom-com. If there's one thing we Londoners like to turn to as the night store in and the air gets decidedly chillier, it's a good love story. Is there anything more heartwarming than a soothing dose of love actually or the holiday in the run-up to Christmas? Uh, yes, actually, as it happens. The magic in it is like, there were like eight million people in London or something and we would have never have met. It felt like a little electric spark on my hand. And I said to mum, I just think I met the woman I'm going to marry. London Love Stories with Katie Strick. A shiny new, refreshingly uplifting and somewhat rollercoaster-filled podcast from The Standard. I was moving to London with my boyfriend two days in. He breaks up with me. She voted for Brexit. And I was like, oh God, like, it felt like a dagger in the heart. I looked at my phone, deleted my apps, and I said, that's it, I'm never dating again. The right one will find me. Featuring all the same tear-jerking, goosebump-generating, feel-good-inducing endorphins as your favourite films. Except, well, these stories actually happened. My heart was thumping, like really, I could feel it in my chest. And I just thought, I should see if I can find him. That's right, London. Expect real couples talking about their screen-worthy meet-cutes, will-they-won't-they-get-togethers and sliding doors moments. I couldn't imagine my life without you in it. No, I couldn't imagine my life without you in it. London Love Stories with Katie Strick. That's me. Give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Brand new feel-good episodes dropping every week throughout November and December. You won't want to miss a single one. Hi, this is Leia Salonga, and you're listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. You'll know on our previous episode that we asked you to get in touch with some of your favourite food moments on stage. Clara told us her favourite food moment was in a musical Love Story, which I think was from 2010. It was from looking up online, I didn't see this, but it was in the Duchess Theatre. I don't know, Nick, did you see this I one? I don't know. Th- this one somehow passed me by. I don't know how I managed to miss that. But, mm. but Clara's told us there's apparently there was a song called Pasta, which featured a young couple in their kitchen cooking pasta and, well, being in love. So <laughs> the song referenced linguine, rigatoni, fettuccine, cannelloni. I mean, there is some rhyming in there. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that, that's a, a delicious email from Clara. Thank you very much and keep them coming in. I yeah. really liked um, that one. Was it The River, the Jez Butterworth play mm. with um, Dominic West in it? And he cooked a, a sort of rather delicious smelling dish of fish, didn't yes, he? Yes, yes, he that did. That was really, I really, yeah, it was so, I mean, it just makes you feel hungry. Going time. way back, I remember seeing Ray Winston knock up some a sort of spaghetti bolognese in the Royal Court Theatre upstairs in Joe Penhall's Some Voices, which oh. was really in a very enclosed space, was an incredible sort of vivid moment. There was a lot of chopping in that. A lot of chopping in that. A lot of quite heavy garlic as well. Usually <laughs> in that as well. And I remember in Ink actually uh, every night Bertie Carvel as uh, Rupert Murdoch had to eat a steak. Yes. Every every matinee every night. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Well of course in Jerusalem as well Mark Rylance also oh. had to uh, drink a pint of milk with a raw egg in it oh, and, geez, a, and a wrap of speed. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the breakfast of champions. That's the one that didn't have us climbing on the stage to try and <laughs> yeah, exactly. what they were doing. We wouldn't condone people drinking raw eggs and speed. No, we absolutely wouldn't. And our second review this week is The Time Traveller's Wife at the Apollo Theatre. But was it two and a half hours we'll never get back?
Nick, you saw this last night. Yeah, so uh, this is the story of Claire, who is an, in inverted commas, talented sculptor, and uh, who is married to Henry, who is a uh, time traveller. So uh, it's uh, adapted from the massive best-selling book, The Time Traveller's Wife, music and lyrics by Joss Stone and Dave Stewart, yes, he of the Eurythmics fame, uh, with a book by Lauren Gunderson, who I don't think many people know over here, but for many, many years has been the most performed playwright in the US, so hugely successful over there. So great ingredients, Mm -hmm. you would have thought. Firstly, what I'd quite like to say is this is a very slick show. It's well put together. The production designed by Anna Fleischer and the video designed by Andre Goulding, I thought, absolutely stunning. There's this amazing moment where there's a song about how Henry feels when he's time traveling. And I really thought that the video design was absolutely a sort of theatrical spectacle. And also they do some sort of lovely theatrical tricks. Old Those of a certain well. generation who remember Aha's Take On Me video may, <laughs> may, well, may, may recognize <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, that, that you know, they'll sort of see a certain similarity between that song and sure. that. Yeah. Sure. Right. So <laughs> now the problem, certain problems for me, uh, if it's not terminated to Judgment Day, most tra- time travel stuff leaves me absolutely cold. I have to say. <laughs> and that's partly because you spend most of the time trying to unpick the premise in your head while you're watching it. Yeah. I haven't read the book. I uh, really haven't had that much interest in reading it, I've got to say. But I was thinking, why does he leap? Yeah. Why does he always leap so bloody quickly into every single scene? Why does he always end up in that meadow with the frankly creepy scenario of he keeps leaping back to talk to his future wife's younger self literally 10 years old he's weird. sort of in his That's 40s weird. or 30s and he just sits there drawing and they're chatting that is very it is odd. a bit it is very weird and very like creepy that. and the thing yeah. is he visits her as an older version of Henry so when they first yeah. meet when they first sync up when they're both in their 20s he's in his 20s so he hasn't met her yet but she's met him all the way through her childhood yeah. so she knows sort of knows that they're destined together it is all a bit creepy and a bit, yeah. and a bit weird um, yeah. yeah I mean I seem to remember I, I did read the book and I, I remember but enjoying its mix of schmaltz and sort of theoretical quantum physics right. um, because it is you know all those questions about time travel if mm. you met your younger self or your younger wife how mm. would you how would you react would it you know change the course of history yep. if you step on a butterfly when you go back you know do you destroy modern civilization mm. um, Henry the, the trigger for his they do actually say the trigger for his time traveling is his, his mother's death she dies when she's in a car with him and he narrowly escapes death and they don't, partly by but traveling. they don't say what triggers off his time travels in no, there's, there's no current state. He just suddenly there's a lightning bolt. He yeah. grasps his heart as if he's about to have a heart attack yeah. then runs off stage like he, he does run off stage. A couple of times <laughs> they do do a couple of quite good illusions and then he does sort of vanish before your eyes. You go, yeah, ooh, those are great. Like, oh, moment. Yeah. But that only happens about a third of the time and the other two he does run off stage going, oh no, it's happening again, <laughs> again, again. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of lame. I mean, also, he, uh, I have to say that uh, David Hunter's Henry doesn't yes. really seem that fussed about the fact that he's, he's transported through time randomly quite often to meet his meet his mum or himself or his younger wife why doesn't he tell but his mum what's going to happen tell his mum, <laughs> why, yeah, why doesn't he buy a lottery ticket yeah, until yeah. two thirds of the way through yeah. the whole thing um, he seems rather unfussed by this because also yes. he, he's naked when he arrives and he's naked when he comes back to the nothing travels with him like in Terminator 2 yeah Terminator. indeed but he, he always be, finds clothes he doesn't he have to always be, finds beat clothes. up any bikers in the book some fairly awful things happen to him because right. he's, not, he's not always going back to the same places sometimes he's dumped in the middle of a frozen wilderness you know where he can't find clothes and things like that Sometimes he's dumped in the middle of deeply hostile people who don't take kindly to a naked man <laughs> dropping from the sky in front of them. But he's sort of like, oh, God, here I go again. You know, but everyone um, else seems to feel that way as well. When they tell their friends, yeah. they're like, what? Did you say you're a time traveller? And then it just completely <laughs> gets swept under the carpet. Yeah, it's, I mean, f- given the talents involved... Um, so discovering I think that one of them's a Brexiteer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's never speak yeah. of this again. It's surprisingly bland, this. You know, that I didn't think, didn't like the score particularly, didn't think the book really worked. And uh, Poor Lauren Gunderson, you know... I'm, 
yeah. I imagine her going around up to everyone in Britain saying, I'm America's most produced playwright. <laughs> and I'm going, really? I've never heard of you. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, it's very by numbers, numbers, isn't it? It's they very by numbers. all the points you think they're going to hit, and they yeah. do, even though it's very much chopped up and you know there is interesting things to play with actually going backwards and forwards but I find a, a real problem is they don't really show them falling in love you know they're already married by that stage yeah. and you're not that massively invested in, mm. in the relationship and also she just seems slightly I mean she gets more miffed as he vanishes I was miffed I was more miffed than her I was like yeah. just stay in the ruddy scene come on yes. this is madness <laughs> yeah. because literally it would be two minutes and then he's off again you think oh right okay they're yeah. still falling yeah, that would be that would be really irritating <laughs> Joanna Woodward as Claire has has the, has the better voice and I think mm-hmm. the better the best song of the whole thing um, but really the, there's not much to it isn't the one the where score. she's furious about his vasectomy <laughs> which had absolutely <laughs> dissolved me in absolutely well spoiler me, alert I'm afraid it left me rather in fits of laughter that bit yeah um, because she I don't know I don't know whether we should keep that in or not because it is a bit of a spoiler but it's sort of not really no, um, no because it's fine. then that gets swept because obviously like with all these Marvel films like if you can travel in time you can change anything like with the multiverse stuff that's why I really failed to get invested in Mm. any of this stuff go back and change it it's fine don't worry about it and also as someone who spent many hours uh, many long car journeys listening to Eurythmics Revenge the cassette my parents put on on loop Mm. and think it's an absolutely stone cold classic I was a bit disappointed by the songs they were fine but you don't remember any of them I'll tell you one thing that I took away from this is that the American healthcare system is much better than we've been led to believe because when uh, Henry manages to convince his doctor that he's a time traveller by telling her something that happens to her son in the future she then immediately says right I've got two specialists and two quantum physicists to look at your case and you're thinking he's a librarian hey how does he keep to hold down a job as a librarian when he um, when he's never there when he's never there when he might jaunt out of the stacks at any moment uh, <laughs> midway through refiling the Dewey system I used to work in a library yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I see I see um, and, you know but B how does he afford this Ameri- how does he afford this healthcare it also lots of little things annoy me about this they describe him as a punk rock and he's the, the, by, they do that by putting him in a leather jacket and a Ned's Atomic Dustbin t-shirt. <laughs> were Ned's Atomic Dustbin big in America in the 80s? I don't really think they were. Anyway, that's, a, that's so a minor cut, point. He's hardly, uh, he yeah. is, exactly. He's like some sort of Sesame Street you know, human who's wandered in here by mistake. <laughs> I mean, they do do their best and, and you know, they're absolutely fine with what they... I think the, the, there's structural problems with the musical itself. I mean, you also, in your review, brilliantly mentioned the Dodgy Barnets, which we should also mention. I think... Very bad they, Fixed a few of them, oh, right. but not all of them. Okay, there was a few beards sort of stuck on. You can see them stuck on with glue. But the thing that really, again, had me in fits of laughter, and I quite enjoyed. I was fine when they aged him. They basically stuck two sideburns onto grey <laughs> yes, sideburns, onto a, and they looked like sort of, I don't want, yeah, like little rodents that you like know who come out from and say, Star Trek I'm, or I'm ten years older, and all he's got are these two weird fluffy things yep. on the side of his face. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that, but but most of the time, you know, and and I felt sorry for him in that and trying to act and sing through that but you know for, for me really ultimately I thought the spectacle was there the people around me enjoyed it the problem I had was I'm not sure about the heart of the book I haven't read the book and I imagine it's a very emotional people talked about it being schmaltzy and all, all that mm. stuff the stage production isn't that schmaltzy I just kind of didn't connect to them no, too much I mean that's the weird thing and again we come back to this thing of people looking for established int- intellectual property that they can monetize mm. in different forms so 
the book was a huge success. It was popular fiction with a sort of literary gloss over mm. it and the fact that it spoke about, you know, the philosophical ramifications of time travel, you know, mm. I think did it the thing made it an intelligent blockbuster. But there was a widely derided film which mm. I have not seen, an HBO adaptation which, which was, was cancelled on the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we've got this musical and as I said in my in my review, I think it's time that people stopped adapting <laughs> the time traveller's wife to different forms because it ain't working. Well, because you've got to abridge it and you can't deal with those interesting philosophical... Well, you yeah. probably could, but they haven't. Right. And this is the problem with this is in a show all about love and, and dealing with, you know, multiple selves and effect, love and physics and all of that stuff, it very much stays skin deep, I'm afraid. I'm looking forward to Terminator 2, the musical. Oh, <laughs> again, that I would watch. I'll be back. <laughs> Time Traveller's Wife is at the Apollo Theatre, booking to March the 30th. And that's this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Check out all our other episodes below, which include guests like Sir Ian McKellen and Roger Allen, Bernadette Peters, Joseph Fines, Tim Minchin and many more. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss us. And remember, you can drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll see you next Sunday. 